Good morning. Uh, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at FAC. Uh, it is always, it's always fun for me to be up here and uh, study the Word of God with you. So what I would like to do this morning is uh, invite you to take up your Bibles if you have them. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're going to camp out on just those first two verses, Romans chapter 12. What I would like to do is uh, read our text this morning and then pray, and then we'll go into our time of study. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. If you do not have uh, your Bibles with you, we do have the words up on the screen for you to follow along with us. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will, uh, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Dear Father, we lift up our time to you now. We pray, Father, that it would be beneficial, that it would be the Holy Spirit speaking to us through me, Father. I pray that it would be more of you and less of me, Father. I thank you so much for our time this morning, uh, and we just pray, Father, that uh, it would be productive and it would be focused and concentrated, please. And in your holy name I pray, amen. I um, typically make it a part of my morning routine um, at the very end, right before I leave, to um, look in the mirror right before I leave. Uh, and I do this for good reason. I want to make sure that my hair is not a mess. I want to make sure there's not something in my teeth. I want to make sure there's not spots on my shirt. I want to make sure that I'm presentable to the rest of the world before I enter it. Uh, you might be able to relate to this. All of those things have happened to me as I am leaving, and I'm thankful that I checked the mirror before I left. Um, one particular morning, a couple months ago, uh, I, I don't know what happened. I must have been rushed. I didn't check in the, in the mirror, and I would later regret it. Um, I arrived at work, and I go into um, our, our work room right there by the offices, and there's a group of ladies talking, and I join in the conversation for a few minutes. And then uh, I walk down the hall, and I grab my coffee, and I have a conversation with somebody there for a few minutes. And then on my way back to my office, I see somebody else in the hall, and we engage in a conversation for a few minutes. And then I walk into my office. And one of the ladies who was in that first conversation in the workroom, she follows closely behind me, um, and almost in a whisper, she says, Mike, I didn't want to embarrass you uh, in front of everybody else, um, but your shirt's on backwards. <laughs> I... I thanked her for not taking advantage of the opportunity to publicly humiliate me because that's probably what I would have done. Um, I'm a terrible person. I, uh, then I went into the restroom and fixed the issue, and then I looked in the mirror again to double-check and make sure all the bases were covered and everything was good and there was nothing else that, uh, that would have caused me humiliation further in the day. Um, this is... This is um, this seems like a silly mistake, right? Um, to look in the mirror and to know that something's wrong and then to change it is normal. Um, however, if that morning I looked in the mirror and saw that my shirt was backwards and proceeded to go about my day as normal, you would think that this is utter foolishness, 
right? This seems like a silly mistake that nobody would, would, would ever make, but this is actually just the illustration that James uses in his, in his book in the New Testament. Um, James 1, this is, what, this is what he says to describe those who read the Bible, that learn from Jesus, that do not live for Jesus. He says this, the words will be up on the screen, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. In the last two weeks, we've been kind of looking at Scripture to observe what does a disciple of Jesus look like. And we've determined that if you look at the disciples, we can see four things. Last week, we saw that the disciples loved as Jesus. They, we love as Jesus. Um, two weeks ago, Pastor Mark took us through the disciples learn from Jesus. Um, this week, I want to examine Scripture, and if you were to observe those first followers, how they lived, you'll see that the disciples were not content with merely learning from Jesus. Head knowledge was not enough for them. And I think they would relate to us when I say that there can be a difficult gap or a large leap between learning from Jesus and living for Jesus. There's a quote out there. I don't know, um, I don't know who said it, uh, but, they, but they say that the, the longest distance in the world is the 18 inches from your head to your heart. The longest distance in the world is the 18 inches from your head to your heart, meaning that we can learn from Jesus all we want, but that long gap to make it to your heart where you live for Jesus is a very, very large gap. It's easy to come here and worship God on Sunday and have a a church life and then to go back home on Monday morning and begin your world life. It is very, very easy to shift back and forth between the two. And so how do we avoid this trap? How do we live for Jesus? How exactly does one not only learn from Jesus, but live for Jesus? I think the answer is clear in Romans 12 that we just read earlier. Let's go ahead and unpack it together. Therefore, therefore, in our passage, Paul begins with that word, therefore. In your own personal study, it's really important to note that whenever you see that word, therefore, It is always referring to something that has come before it, something that is written before that. You should always take note of what happens before that passage. In our instance this morning, uh, when Paul writes, therefore, he is actually most likely referring to the entire book of Romans up until that point, the first 11 chapters. If you were to read Romans chapters 1 through 11, if you were to study them, you would see that some of our deepest theological convictions come from the first 11 chapters of Romans. And it is an incredibly important first half of the book because we delve into some of our deepest doctrine. Paul is instructing us what the right belief is. How are we to believe? And then from chapter 12 on, Paul kind of goes into the more practical elements of our relationship with God. This is uh, the, the pattern that we see in most of Paul's writings where he first establishes right belief followed by right conduct. Right belief, and in, in, in light of that right belief, how then are we supposed to act? What is right behavior? 
And so chapter 12 is the beginning of that right behavior. Therefore, and he tells us, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. What Paul is asking the reader to do is to observe God's mercy. Observe God's mercy. Now, the word mercy here is plural. So it's actually saying God's mercies. Paul is saying, look and see at all the immeasurable good things that God has done to us. All the immeasurable ways that God has been faithful to us. All of the countless ways that God has been good to us. The ways that God has expressed his goodness to us. Look and see that through scripture, God is faithful. And in view of those mercies, because of God's mercies, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Now, there's a really important point that we could just blow by, but it's too important not to pass up. We have to understand that when you look at Scripture, the mercy of God, the mercies of God, always precede righteousness. The mercies of God always come before righteousness. And it is critical that we don't switch those around. We do not receive God's mercy because we are righteous. No, we are righteous because we have received God's mercy. It's absolutely critical to understand that we are saved to righteousness. You look at the Israelites in Exodus. God delivers them out of Egypt and then he gives them the law, not the other way around. We cannot have righteousness without the mercy of God. In order to live for Jesus, we have to recognize that it was impossible to live for Jesus without God's mercy. It is impossible to live for Jesus without God's mercy. God's mercy is the reason for our moral choices. It's impossible to be good just for goodness sake. We need something more foundational. We need a why. Don't, you know, doing something good just for the sake of being good isn't good enough anymore. Without an unwavering foundation, all views are relative and there's really no reason to choose one over the other. Uh, God's mercy is the foundation for our good works. God's mercy to us is the source and the basis for why we make moral decisions why we make good choices. And without this understanding of God's mercy as our foundation, our moral choices, without that foundation, are insignificant, ambiguous, and they no longer matter. All because there's no foundation. And it's from this, it's because of this, that Paul calls us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as sacrifices. What we learn changes how we live. This knowledge should prompt total commitment. One commentator would say that the response of the believer to this mercy is absolute surrender. Because when Paul tells us to offer our bodies, he's not talking about just our physical bodies. No, he's using that term as a general whole self. Offer everything you have as a sacrifice. 
This is illustrated in a conversation that Jesus has with some of his followers in Mark chapter 8. I would recommend turning there. We're going to refer to it a couple times because this conversation really kind of serves as a case study for Romans 12. Mark chapter 8, 31 through 36. You can just kind of put your thumb in there. Um, this, this is what's going on. Jesus is teaching people and he is revealing that he uh, needs to be rejected. And this is what he says. He, meaning Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Jesus is telling his followers, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross. What does that mean, take up your cross? If I tell you to take up your baseball bat and follow me, what are we going to do? We're, We're going to play baseball. If I tell you to take up your rifle and follow me, what are we going to do? Hopefully it's to go hunting, right? If I tell you to pick up your art supplies and follow me, what are we going to do? We're we're going to paint some art. Every single one of the people listening to Jesus would understand that the cross was the primary form of capital punishment for Rome. So when Jesus tells us, to take up your cross and follow him. Where are we going? We're going to die. We're going to die. This idea about being a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, was not original to Paul. Paul stole this idea from Jesus. This is from Jesus' teaching that we're to sacrifice our lives if we intend on living for Jesus. It's a metaphor to lay down your hopes, lay down your dreams, lay down your possessions, your pride, your emotions, your thoughts, your future, your family, your friendships, your wallet, your will. That is the type of sacrifice that Paul is talking about, laying down everything. And Paul describes this sacrifice in three ways. The first one is it's it's a living sacrifice, meaning it's ongoing. It's a daily commitment to living for Jesus, a daily commitment to lay down all that I have. Because I don't know about you, several days I have the temptation to pick up, pick up my life, pick it back up and hold it to myself. It's a daily commitment. It's ongoing. It's holy. It's a holy sacrifice. Holy simply means to be set apart. What are we set apart for? We are set apart for righteousness. We're set apart for our good works. And it pleases God. It's acceptable to God. It makes God happy 
when we willingly submit to him. My um, two-year-old Jacob, um, he, he hasn't quite figured out the whole potty training thing yet, right? Unfortunately, he has reached an age where not only, um, not only will he refuse to use the potty, but he also refuses to wear a diaper. Um, this is problematic. It, it gets interesting around the house when, when it's time to change Jacob's diaper. The kid will run around without his pants on for a half hour, right? And it turned like, my wife and I, Sarah and I, it's like two on one. And I still feel like we're outnumbered. It's, it turns into like a WrestleMania match trying to get this kid to wear a diaper, right? When my children willingly submit to an authority who is providing them with something good, when my children willingly submit, the world is a much more pleasant place. My world is a pleasant place. Your world is a much more pleasant place. And this is what Paul is asking us to do, to willingly offer ourselves as a living sacrifice that is holy, but also pleases God, makes him happy. When we are changed by the gospel, by God's mercies, it will be reflected in our daily conduct. We will change. And Paul reminds us, That when we do offer ourselves up as a sacrifice, that this is our spiritual act of worship. In offering ourselves up willingly, we worship God. We worship God. And so this shows us, it tells us that our whole life is an act, is, 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 is an act of worship. Our whole life is one of worship. Worship is not mainly something we do on Sunday morning. Worship is an everyday matter. This morning, we have worshiped God through our fellowship. We have worshiped God through our singing. We have worshiped God through teaching and preaching of his word. Those are all good things, and I don't want to discredit that for a second. But are you worshiping God through your conduct the rest of the week? Are you worshiping God when you gossip about that friend who lives down the street? Are you worshiping God when you lie to your parents about where you really were last night? Are you worshiping God when you lust after that coworker? Our worship is an everyday matter. Are you worshiping God by offering yourself up as a spiritual sacrifice, not just on Sundays, but the rest of the week? I fear that a lot of our worship on Sunday may be muffled by the lack of worship Monday through Sunday. It's a great concern that we should have. And so, how do you worship? How do you worship? How do we offer ourselves up as a sacrifice? What is the primary way that we offer ourselves as a sacrifice? As we move on to verse 2, Paul moves from what, basically he moves on from the what of Christian life in verse 1, to the how in verse 2. How do I offer myself up as a sacrifice? This is what he says. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. He's saying at one point you conformed to the rest of the world. You were like the world. 
Don't do that any longer. Be transformed. You cannot be a living sacrifice and conform to the pattern of the world at the same time. You cannot do both. And when we think about conforming to the pattern of the world, we get this picture of uh, the world kind of squeezing us into their mold. Right? They want us to look like them. They want us to talk like them. They want us to think like them. They want us to act like them. Right? And this is dangerous. Because the world, as Paul puts, the world doesn't care about God's mercies. They disregard God. They have no foundation, as I made earlier, a point I made earlier. They have no foundation for which to base their decisions. This world is a, a fallen world. And because it's fallen, this world cannot think clearly or have a clear perspective. Because there's no foundation... The world's viewpoint is distorted, it's skewed, and it's tainted by its own fallen nature. And this is why Paul urges us to not squeeze into this distorted and tainted mold that's going to deceive you and lie to you, but instead be transformed. Change. Change so that you fit into God's mold. Change so your attitude can be aligned with God. To be transformed is just that. It means to align yourself with God. We need to change how we view the world. We need to change how we view God. And most of all, we need to change how we view ourselves. We need to be looking at those three things through the eyes of God. And so now, we're no longer saying, how do I see this work assignment? But how does God see this work assignment? We're no longer asking the question, how do I view my relationships? But we're asking, how does God view my relationships? No longer, how do I view the outcast? But how does God view the outcast? We have to understand that being transformed that transition from me, what I think, to what God thinks, it is, it is a lifelong process that we call sanctification. Sanctification, it's the process in which the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus. We are constantly, daily, long-term being transformed to look more like Jesus. And this will obviously take some time. It won't happen overnight. Think about it like this. Sarah and I moved into our house uh, roughly th- a little less than three years ago. That moment when we first walked through the door to our new house, there was a great amount of evidence that there was a former occupant, that somebody else had lived in the house. And so slowly we started changing things to make it look like we lived in the house. We, we changed the paint on some of the walls. We changed the carpet in some of the rooms. We put our furniture in it. We hung up our picture. We brought in our dishes. We landscaped how we wanted to landscape. And even though it didn't happen overnight, slowly but surely it looks more like our house than it did like the former occupant, the person that lived in it prior to us. And this is what happens when Jesus takes over our life. At first, there is a lot of evidence that there was a former occupant, myself. But over time, the Holy Spirit begins changing things in my heart so we look more like Jesus is with us and in us and less like ourselves and the rest of the world. 
And once again, I can't reiterate this a month uh, enough that many years there still may be evidence of old occupants in our hearts. Many years there may still be evidence and there might be instances where we find something in our hearts and we say, how long has that been there for? I, I didn't even realize that was there. For instance, I was in my shed last summer. We had lived in my house over two years and um, we, we have shelving in our shed and I never used the top shelf. I never needed to use it until now. I was putting something up on the top shelf and uh, I, I felt around on the top shelf and I, and I felt something. And I brought, I brought it down and to, to my horror as a Cleveland Browns fan, it was a Pittsburgh Steelers license plate. It was in my shed for two years. What if somebody found that? What if somebody saw that? How long has that been there for? I certainly want to get rid of that sin in my life. Right? Now that I have lost all credit to everybody, this is what happens when we're transformed by the mercies of God. Our hearts begin to look less like the rest of the world and more like Jesus. And it's a painful process but it's a beautiful process. And what's the primary mode for this transformation? How does one transform? How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. By the renewing of our mind. Your actions, our actions flow from how we think about the world. And so take another look at Mark 8. I, I don't have this verse up there, but look at Mark 8, verse 33. Um, Jesus is explaining once again to his followers that he has to be rejected and that he has to be uh, de- denied and he has to be put to death. And Peter comes out and says, no, you can't do that, Jesus. You, you, you're not going to be rejected. And look at what Jesus says to Peter in verse 33. He says, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter was still conforming to the pattern of the world in this instance. Here Jesus is claiming that he has to be rejected and die, and Peter's thinking, wait a minute, it's my understanding that that's not what a king looks like, Jesus. It's my understanding that that's not what a savior looks like. That's not what a Messiah looks like, because he had his mind on the world and what the world would think than what God would think. It's in the mind that spiritual growth occurs. It's in the mind where decisions are made that set you on a path of either conforming to the world or being transformed. Think about this. The fall of mankind hinged on a battle of the mind. Have you ever thought about that? The fall of mankind itself hinged on a battle in the mind. If you were to look at Genesis 3, you get the story where the serpent is talking to Adam and Eve. The serpent's talking to Eve, and the serpent didn't force feed Adam and Eve this fruit. They didn't, he didn't throw the fruit at him. He didn't force feed them at all, right? What did he say? He challenged them in their mind. Did God really say that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did, did, did God really say that? No, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. In fact, God just said that because he doesn't want you to be like him. And then you see the battle in Eve's mind play out. 
It just leaps off the pages when you think of it in that perspective. She saw that the fruit was good. She saw that it was pleasing to the eye. She desired it to gain wisdom. The first sin, I'm convinced, wasn't the actual act of eating the fruit. No, it was the the decision they made in their mind that they wanted to be like God. It was that instance where they decided it was okay to rebel against God. A war was waged in the minds of Adam and Eve, and they lost. And you know, we, 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 we're hard on Adam and Eve sometimes, I think, because if, you put, if I put myself in that situation, I can't say that I would have done anything differently. Because there's moments in my life where I battle with sin in my mind. It is a wrestling match in my head as I seek to be transformed. It's hard. It's painful. This is why Paul instructs us in 2 Corinthians 10 to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Because if we fail to do so, we leave our mind defenseless and vulnerable to attack. We need to be proactive about the battles that are waged in our minds. One commentator says that we are called to engage in the lifelong process of changing the way we think. And by changing the way we think, we change the way we live. We are called to engage in the lifelong process of changing the way we think. And by changing the way we think, we change the way we live. Isn't our motivation always a battle? Isn't it always a battle in, my, in our mind when we procrastinate? Isn't it always an issue that we're playing out in our heads, right? Oh, I should do this now. No, I, I can wait. No, I really should do this now. No, I think, I think I'm going to wait. I should really start like working out today. No, tomorrow. I, it's all in the mind. So we need to be alert. We need to be careful. We need to be equipped. Transformation happens in the mind. Transformation happens in the mind. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. That submitting my whole self to God and conforming to his pattern sounds awful. Living for Jesus sounds painful. It sounds annoying and rather inconvenient at best. Right? I know you may be thinking that because I've thought that in the past. I've wrestled with this myself because there's parts of us that like the pattern of the world. We're enticed by the pattern of the world. It calls to us. We see that it's desirable and we see that it's pleasing to the eye. We sit here and we call out to God and say, God, you can have all of this, but I want this. I get this chunk. You can call all the shots with everything else, but this right here is mine. Why, God, can't I choose my career path and what I want to do with with, with my job? Why can't I choose what I want in my relationships and who I date and who I marry? Why can't, why can't I have a hold onto this? God, you can have everything else, but boy, I am going to hold on to this secret sin that nobody else knows about it because I want it. I want this. You can have everything else, but this one right here, this is mine. Why on earth would I lay down my life? 
Why? Give me one reason why I should give up all that I am. Paul reminds us at the end of verse 2, he answers that very question. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. As we seek to sacrifice our own will, we discover that his will is good. We discover that his will is pleasing. We discover that his will is perfect. It's in our obedience to God. It's in our living for Jesus that we see that God really does know what he's talking about. And there's no other way I can convince you other than to just try it. Just test it. Test God's will. Be obedient and see how everything is uncovered that God indeed knows what he's doing, that God actually does have everything in control. And it's not only the best way, but it's the only way that leads to actual life as it was intended to be lived. Let me remind you once again, back in Mark 8, verses 35 through 36. I've got these up on the screen. It says this, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. This is Jesus talking again. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? You want one good reason why you should offer yourself up as a sacrifice? Right there. Because we find that when we lose our life, when we sacrifice our life, we actually, in turn, gain our life. When we lay down everything, we actually, in turn, gain everything. And so, we can either cling to the treasures of this world passionately and enjoy them for a little bit of time, or we can let it all go and enjoy a treasure from God that is infinitely better than any treasure on this world, and we get to enjoy it forever. Which one do you want? You're logical people. I think the answer is clear. It is too important to walk away today without making that decision of whether or not I'm going to live for Jesus. It is too important to get this wrong because this is what God's word says. 1 John 2, 3 through 6, it says this. We know that we have come to know him, Jesus, if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the trust is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. If you do not live for Jesus, if you're not obedient, if you have no desire to change, if you aren't making even remote progress, you have to wonder if your heart is truly captivated by the gospel if your heart is truly captivated by the mercies of God. Yes, come as you are. Come as you are. Keep your drugs. Keep your alcohol abuse. 
keep your anger, keep your sexual immorality, because we believe in a gospel of grace. You don't have to give up any of those things to begin to follow Jesus. You don't have to give up any of those to take advantage of Jesus' wonderful sacrifice for you because Jesus will meet you right where you are. You don't have to take a single step towards him. He has come all the way. Jesus will meet you right where you are, but he refuses to let you stay there because he wants you to experience life as he created it to be. And if you are truly captivated by this good news, by God's mercies, over time, I am convinced that you will throw these things at the foot of the cross willingly because you've been transformed. To you, there will be no other option. There will be no other life worth living than the one that Jesus has in store for you. Let's pray.